tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, what do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult-Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is a... Very special, yet very unconventional episode of the Cult Worthy Classic. Um, I do not have a guest this week. I do not have a particular film I'm going to be talking about. This week's been a little bit challenging. I had the live stream for The Cure event, which was a success, by the way. We did that yesterday with my friend Mikey, who's been on the show several times. He quizzed me on movie trivia And uh, we read some scenes from Pulp Fiction and Fargo. It was a really good time raising money for cancer research. And I'm super grateful and thankful to Nikolai's Kitchen and everyone involved in that for getting us on the show. And um, yeah, that kind of took precedent over getting a new guest episode out for the cult-worthy classic. But there is something about this week, every year that happens, where I just get a little distracted and I I get a little anxious of what a particular day of this this week of the year means to me. It was five years ago today that my dad passed away. We lost a really great man, and he took his life because he had learned that he had the beginning stages of Alzheimer's and some other things that were going on. And also, I think there was just something where he felt like he just didn't bring anything to this world anymore. The world seemed to be going crazy. The political climate was just insane. And this was a man who was old school in his ways and his thinkings. And he never really grabbed onto technology, especially with like this new generation of social media and cell phones. I think it was just a lot of world for him. And so each year it gets a little bit easier, I should say, where I don't let the day creep up on me. I I know it's coming. And every year when I wake up, it gets a little bit better in the sense of I don't feel just this overbearing wave of sadness. If anything, I feel appreciation for all the things that he taught me and all the things that he did for other people and made us appreciate his life more than the fact that we lost him so early. So today on the Cult Worthy Classic, I call this episode Cult Worthy Origins. I'm going to regale you with stories about how my dad got me into this whole cinematic world that I live in now. My obsession with movies, especially movies that not a lot of people have seen, and just like some other things that I think he brought to my psyche, brought to who I was as a person and who I was going to be. And so with that, let me kind of just fill you in on some things about my dad. His name was Eduardo. Everyone called him Chato, and he was everyone's friend. Everyone liked him. Even my friends even liked him uh, more than they liked me. He was a very, very popular guy, a very nice guy, very charming guy. 
His uh, personality was addictive. People just wanted to be around him. And I, I think I took a lot of that from him as I was growing up, where it's like, you know, he wasn't tall, and he wasn't super handsome, and he never had a lot, a lot of money, but his personality made up for all those things that so many of us from like, I'd say the 70s, 80s, and early 90s were so pressured to feel that we had to be great looking and have lots of money and be tall, be glamour magazine cover material. But, you know, he just really lived for who he was and made the best of every situation he was ever in. He had a saying that is now uh, the toast for his party that we throw him every year, like his celebration of life party. And that was, and that was, if you can't be tall, be funny. If you can't be rich, be generous. And if you can't be any of those things, there's always tequila. Now, I'm not a tequila drinker, but I do take my shot of tequila every year after we give that toast. Now, a little backstory on this guy. Uh, he was born in Mexico in 1949, and he was born to a multi-generational flying trapeze family. I come from circus people. He was a flying trapeze artist very early, and he spent the majority of his life traveling the world with the Flying Palacios, going from circus to circus, doing these flying trapeze acts. He was an amazing aerial acrobat, as well as pretty much everyone on his side of the family. And he met my mom in Las Vegas. She had just graduated high school and started working in Las Vegas as a cocktail waitress. And somehow they met and eventually got together, and he taught her how to be a flying trapeze artist as well. And they traveled the world together, all of Europe, doing these flying trapeze acts and all these different European circuses. They even got married in Germany before the wall fell. So yeah, I, I think their marriage certificate is actually in German and in a former part of Germany that doesn't even exist anymore. So when he passed away, that was a, a real fun time trying to get everything cleared with this weird former German marriage certificate that nobody wanted to, to validate. Now, I came along in 1981, and at that point, he was a flying trapeze artist, as well as my mom, at the Circus Circus Casino in Reno, Nevada. They had opened up the original Circus Circus in Las Vegas and then transferred over to Reno. So... I was born and raised essentially in a casino, and my childhood was spent in the Circus Circus Casino, wandering the arcades, wandering the midway, playing games. Everyone knew me. I got to play the games for free, but mostly I got to watch my parents several times a day do this death-defying flying trapeze act in a casino. And when you're a kid and you're in an environment like that, you don't think that it's weird. You don't think that it is out of the ordinary. In fact, what was weird to me was going to other friends' house on the weekends and their parents not being flying trapeze artists or not working in a casino. It's like, your dad's a banker? No, my dad flies 40 feet above the, uh, the ground five times a week, but whatever. Now, I'm an only child, and if I wasn't wandering the hallways and the casino floors, I was watching TV or playing video games. But my parents are really big on me not just watching trash TV and Saturday morning cartoons. In fact, they were very strict about how many cartoons 
or how much free TV time I had before and after school. They would much rather me watch something educational like a National Geographic show or some kind of Carl Sagan Cosmos show. My dad was really into those, but there was one thing that I could watch as much as I wanted of and with very little question or monitoring, and that was movies. You know, my dad honestly loved films, and he did not skimp on the cable channels. I remember being one of the few kids in my neighborhood that had HBO and Cinemax and American Movie Classics and all these different shows and all these different cable channels. And what we would do is we would make these mixtapes. He would get one of those eight-hour extended play VHS tapes and just record blocks of movies on top of each other. So you would have a VHS tape that might start off with Rambo First Blood and then have Old Yeller following it up and then maybe have Ghostbusters and at the end of it, some kind of Disney cartoon or, or a musical. There was no rhyme or reason to it. All I know is that we had a lot of these. And that was really much of my childhood is playing outside, playing in the arcades of the casino and watching movies. But there were very particular films that my dad liked, and to this day, they are still some of my favorite films, and I can't help but think of my dad every time I either watch them, or even if I pass by the DVD or Blu-ray case on the shelf. It just takes me right back to being five or six years old and watching these films with my dad. So the first one that I want to talk about, which I think is the film that really just defines my dad, even in the title, and that was Little Big Man. My name is Jack Crabb. When I was 10 years old, my family was wiped out by a band of wild Indians. But the Cheyenne had no idea. He is little in body, but his heart is big. His name shall be Little Big Man. Got to cut your throat to get it through your head of a white man. White? That's your one gunfighter. Directed by Arthur Penn, released in 1970, starring Dustin Hoffman, Faye Dunaway, Chief Dan George, and Martin Balsam. I think of this film as kind of like the precursor to Forrest Gump. It is about Jack Crabb, played by Dustin Hoffman, who is notoriously short, as my dad was. And I think that's why he liked this film, because if there was a phrase to describe my dad in his entire life, that was he was a little big man. He was like five foot two. But he had a big presence and he had a big ambition for what he wanted to do. And that was be a jack of all trades. I mean, this guy was a flying trapeze artist, but he could also fix a car. He could also build a house. He knew everything about landscaping and plumbing. Like he was just one of those, I don't know, vocational wonders where he knew how to do everything. And he tried many, many times to teach me these things. 
But as a kid, I was very stubborn and just one-track-minded when it came to something, and that was either reading or watching movies. I never thought in a million years that I would need to know how to change a tire or fix plumbing. And to this day, I regret all those free lessons that he tried to teach me, but also he wasn't too pushy about it. He was like, all right, you'll learn someday that you're going to need these qualities. So going back to this film, Little Big Man, it is about Jack Crabb, who the beginning of the film starts with him as an old man, about 116 years old, I think, telling the story of his life to a journalist. And in Forrest Gump fashion, it goes to these flashbacks where he starts off as a kid as part of a wagon train whose family is massacred by Native Americans. And he and his sister are taken in by the Sioux Nation. And while his sister runs away, he stays and is raised by them in their ways. And they call him Little Big Man because he is a very small-statured guy, but he has like this massive bravery that goes to him. So they call him Little Big Man. Eventually, he is reintroduced back into the white society and raised Christian, where he becomes all these different things. He becomes a gunslinger who is coached by Wild Bill Hickok. He ends up serving General Custer and, in a sense, leads to the disaster at Little Bighorn. So just like Forrest Gump, these oral histories that kind of get described by Dustin Hoffman are all leading through these different points of history, and it kind of works this character, Jack Crabb, into that story. It's a fantastic movie, and I found myself watching it even by myself, not with my dad. And he was really fascinated in American history, and I think that's one of the reasons why he liked this movie. Anytime we went on vacation, if we went to Wyoming or South Dakota or wherever, he always had these little factoids in the back of his head that he learned from either a novel or a history book or a show. And I kind of think I've taken that from him, but applied it to movies and books, or I just have like this weird photographic memory of actors and directors and plots of the 5,000 plus movies I've seen in my lifetime. But I really liked this film, and I try to show it to many people as possible because it doesn't really get talked about much these days. And, you know, there are some people that find it problematic about the representation of Native Americans from like the 1960s and 70s. But I think it really does um, a disservice to that mentality because it is a movie that really tried. You know, yes, there are. American Anglo actors playing Native Americans in this film, but there also are a lot of true Native Americans like Chief Dan George playing Old Lodgkins, who is essentially the adoptive grandfather of, of Dustin Hoffman's character. And it really kind of like paints a really bad picture on the cavalry led by Custer in a very violent uh, climax where you just really get this hate for the white man's culture as they are genociding the Native Americans. Another film that I think did this maybe a little bit more exploitively was uh, Soldier Blue starring Candace Bergen, but um, that's a different film. I'm not going to talk about that one. But yeah, so Little Big Man, definitely a film that my dad absolutely loved and introduced me to at a very young age, and I, I think this will just be one of my favorite films forever because of that. Now, another film on the same kind of note, because he was fascinated with that culture, was Jeremiah Johnson from 1972, starring Robert Redford. His name was Jeremiah Johnson. They say he wanted to be a mountain man. Nobody knows whereabouts he come from, and don't seem to matter much. 
He was a young man, and ghosty stories about the tall hills didn't scare him none. Bought him a good horse and traps and other truck that went with being a mountain man and just said goodbye to whatever life was down there below. This is his story. Robert Redford as Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah Johnson made his way into the mountains. I, I know who you are. You're the same dumb pilgrim I've been hearing for 20 days and smelling for three. Betting on forgetting all the troubles that he knew. Take him. What? Take him. Ma'am, I wouldn't know how to tend after it. The trail was wide and narrow. Directed by Sidney Pollack, this tells a story of a man who leaves the world after the Civil War and becomes a trapper and a mountain man. And he has this lifelong vendetta against the Crow Nation for killing his family. And it really is just kind of like a character-driven piece by Robert Redford, who spends the majority of the movie by himself up in the hills. And it was filmed in a part of Utah that I actually lived in for a while, which is called Sundance now, because after he shot in this area, Robert Redford bought this property, named it Sundance, turned it into a ski resort, and now we have the Sundance Film Festival. And this film, I think he liked because, again, I think he had this weird desire to be a mountain man. My dad had a, a powder and ball musket from Mountain Man Times that was like his prized possession. I, I think that he took care of that more than any other thing that he had in his possession. And, you know, I used to steal it once in a while and pretend that I was Jeremiah Johnson and play Mountain Man too. But, you know, when we would go up into the hills and hike or go camping, I would always feel like I was a part of this film because it, it just really brought me into this world that this film created that my dad was so much a part of. Like, he loved this film. He had the soundtrack on 8-track. He'd played on the car on our way to school. So it's just another movie that I feel really represented him and his his love of history and his love of, of Robert Redford and nature. And, and yeah, I, I would say that this is another one that I can't walk past this shelf and see it without thinking about him. And what's funny is that there's a really famous meme of Robert Redford with a beard kind of looking towards the camera and nodding that you're seeing a lot of people use these days when they're like, yes, I agree with something that someone's posted online. Yeah, that comes from this film, Jeremiah Johnson. So definitely check this one out. Another film that I can't walk past or think about without thinking about my dad is 1975's Hard Times, directed by Walter Hill. Now, tell me, how'd you make money? I knock people down. You mean like a prize fighter? No, they're pickup fights. The money's made on bets. What does it feel like to knock somebody down? It makes me feel a hell of a lot better than it does him. 1933, America had hit the skids. People were out of work and out of luck. Third refill cost a nickel. Life was as tough as a cheap steak. Who's you been down the long, hard road? Who hasn't? It was hard times. I got a husband in jail, no job, and no prospects. I don't look past the next bend in the road. A man had to live by his wits. Well, my man's just starting out. It's good, but I'd get long odds. What kind of odds are you talking about? Five to one. Three to one. D. Or by his fists. <laughs> Columbia Pictures presents Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson. So I've always loved Charles Bronson because I feel like my dad emulated him in many ways. 
every time I watch a Charles Bronson film, especially like one of the older ones, they had very similar builds. My dad was ripped, and they also had very similar facial features, like a constant grimace that would also be lit up by just a very charming and addictive smile. And my dad loved all the Charles Bronson movies. He showed me all the Death Wish movies way too young. And another one that I'll talk about in a minute on this podcast. But Hard Times was his favorite. And it's a story about a a legal prize fighter during Depression era New Orleans, played by Charles Bronson, who kind of gets hooked up with this shady fight promoter who's a gambling addict, played by James Coburn. And what's really great about the film, it was a early work by Walter Hill. I think it might be Walter Hill's very first directorial debut before he went on to make things like Southern Comfort and The Warriors and 48 Hours. But there is just, again, very few characters in this film. It really is a character-driven piece with Bronson as like a man who's really not afraid to lose everything because he has nothing. And he's only really good at one thing, and that's fighting. And my dad was a boxer. He was, he was kind of like an amateur boxer, and he'd done some fights, and he taught me how to box. And being a small guy, like I am of stature, those skills came in very handy when I used to get bullied in school, especially when we moved to a state that had less brown people <laughs> that I got really bullied at first. And one of my best friends now is a kid whose ass I kicked in fifth grade after he was teasing me for being a different color. So, you know, that is just one of the things I think that this film really reflected him of being someone who had a very, very valuable skill that not a lot of people consider a skill, and that's fighting. And not only fighting, but knowing when to fight and when not to fight. And for being a kid growing up in Reno, Nevada, and your parents working in a casino, you know, there is a lot to be said about gambling addiction and just losing everything in this film my parents never gambled. You know, my mom might have played the penny slots every once in a while, but my dad never gambled. And that's something I never asked him about. I never asked him if he had a history with gambling, if he ever had a gambling addiction that he overcame. He just never touched a machine. And it wasn't until I was like a little bit older that I realized that his gambles were really never monetary. He wouldn't gamble with money as much as he would gamble gamble with time and with health and with possessions, you know, taking risks and taking chances that would either bring something to him that was, you know, successful or forcing him to start life all over again with the family in tow, which when I was a kid, I didn't really recognize. But when I grew up, I'm like, oh, wow, we started our life over several times because of gambles. You know, not financial gambles in a casino, but gambles with jobs or gambles with friends or gambles with opportunity. And it's made me a little bit more self-cautious in what I do in my life, whether it's a career or the expensive purchase of a car or a home, because I, I don't want my kids to start their lives over several times during their formative years like like my dad did. And I think that kind of goes back to you know, the ghosts that haunted him in the final days of his life. Again, just kind of going back to these films that he liked that were cautionary tales, but also tales of toughness and and strife and overcoming adversity. It's just kind of painting a picture that I never really noticed until a few years after he was gone. 
So yeah, do check out that film, 1975's Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson, James Coburn, and directed by Walter Hill. Speaking of all of this macho-ness that <laughs> all these films have encompassed, there's another one that I just remember being on TV all the time and having the record of the soundtrack being played quite often in my house. And that is 1968's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Charles Bronson was his favorite actor, then Clint Eastwood was his second favorite. And I was raised on Sergio Leone films, this being the first one of note, starring Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, Lee Van Cleef. And it is just this classic story of you've got the good, the bad, and the ugly, all bad people living in this rough time of the Old West where Eli Wallach plays Tuco, this low-level crook and thief and murderer but you can't help like the guy a little bit because he's just so charming and magnetic. And then you've got the stoic blondie played by Clint Eastwood smoking his little cigarillo. He is a sharpshooter, and he and Tuco have kind of like put together this plan where Tuco will just keep getting caught and his warrant money keeps getting more and more enticing to bounty hunters where Clint Eastwood will capture him, turn him in, collect the bounty, and then shoot the rope before he is hung so they can just do it again somewhere else. And now in the middle of this, you also have Lee Van Cleef as Angel Eyes. And he has just one of the most unforgettable faces you've ever seen in a film. And he plays a bounty hunter who is, after this Civil War gold, I mean, so many movies about Civil War gold, that uh, eventually Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach learn about too. And then the whole film becomes kind of like this cat and mouse who can get to the gold first? And in that mix, you've got all this beautiful cinematography by Sergio Leone. You've got this haunting music that just anyone would recognize by Ennio Morricone. But let's not forget the classic Mexican standoff at the end of the film, where all three of them are just in a triangular position, all ready to draw. And if you've seen the film Reservoir Dogs, the whole final scene with them in the warehouse doing their Mexican standoff comes directly from this film. Now, my dad wasn't really like a fanboy of anything except for, I think, this film because over the years, I would see him collect like these ponchos that he would wear occasionally to dress up in. And even though he was only like five foot two, he would get cowboy boots. He had a pretty cool cowboy hat. And every once in a while, I would find him dressed up like this just for fun or for a Halloween thing. And I'm like, oh, you're trying to be Blondie from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. 
And I just thought that was really great because he had a lot of fun with it and it taught me to have fun and I guess kind of cosplay in a sense because the next film that I'm about to talk about really was that for me. And that was Jason and the Argonauts. Turn back, Jason. We're trapped. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of an epic voyage that has been told and retold since the birth of Western civilization, now presented on the screen for the first time. Ah! Ah! Do your hearts crack and your backs break? Jason and his band of Argonauts, the mightiest warriors the world of adventure has ever known. Released in 1963, starring Todd Armstrong, Kim Novak, Lawrence Nesmith, and Michael Gwynn, this was my favorite film as a child. Everything that had to do with Greek mythology, especially if it had Ray Harryhausen special effects, was my favorite. But the reason why this film really just spoke to me is my dad made me a little shield, a little chest plate, and a wooden sword. And we would go hike out in the desert to this area that had a bunch of these big rocks and boulders. And together, we would reenact an imaginary scene of fighting the skeletons in Jason and the Argonauts. Seriously, one of my favorite films of all time. It was one of those things where like, I would bring this to school and want to play it with other kids at recess. And all those kids didn't know what it was. They wanted to play Ghostbusters or Transformers. And I'm like, I want to play Jason and the Argonauts. And no one would play. But my dad would. And that is one of the reasons why I can't watch this film without thinking about him. Now, lastly, this film forever just is my dad in a nutshell. And that is Once Upon a Time in the West. The Railroad. The Boom Towns. A New Life. And the Promised Land. Once Upon a Time. Nineteen sixty-eight, directed by Sergio Leone again, starring Charles Bronson again, Henry Fonda, Claudia Cardinal, and in my opinion, the person that steals the show, Jason Robards. Now, this is a long film. I remember it just being so long. The video cassette that we had was two cassettes because it was like almost three hours. But it was a film that never bored me. I was just fascinated by the camera work. Again, the music by Ennio Morricone but mostly the way they shot Charles Bronson and doing the needle drop of his harmonica sound, this sound. It was one of the first films I ever saw that had musical cues particular for each character. So the harmonica sound was for harmonica played by Charles Bronson, who was kind of like this stand-in for uh, Clint Eastwood in this man with no name out in the West with a mysterious past who has a mission of vengeance against Henry Fonda, who has this music cue.
And then you had a music cue for Claudia Cardinal, who is a widow who came from New Orleans out to the West and has uh, acquired this property that is wanted by these land barons for the uh, railroad to go through. And she has this theme. which was also used in Kill Bill by Quentin Tarantino in the scene where Oren Ishii's mom dies. So again, Tarantino playing homage to this really classic scene and this classic score. But my favorite music cue, one that I would whistle at school and I still kind of hum to this very day, is the music cue for Jason Robard's character. And his name is Cheyenne. Again, this movie was long, but it was gorgeous, and it was one of the very first films that made me, as a young child, I think I was like seven or eight when I first saw it, appreciate the majesty of cinema, that it was shot in such a widescreen 70 millimeter format with all these beautiful landscapes, and the dolly shots, and the zooms, and the wide-angle lenses, things that Sergio Leone just did masterfully, and so many filmmakers have tried to copy. This was probably his favorite movie. It was just something that was always on in the house. And it's one of those movies that, like, if it was on TV and you caught it 45 minutes in, we would still just sit and watch it. And again, you know, it was that kind of macho Western mentality. He was very into Westerns. But this one, I think, was really just really true to him. So... There were many, many movies on this list that I could have talked about, but those are the ones that really speak to me when I think about him. And one of the last films that he and I saw together in the theater was John Wick 2. And I just remember seeing these films, the first one and the second one with him, and just seeing the smile on his face with all this choreographed violence and headshots. I mean, he wasn't a violent man, but he appreciated the artistry of violence, so to speak, the same way you would appreciate a skilled boxer just doing an amazing job in the ring. I think if he was still around in the height of UFC, he'd be really into that as well because he just thought there was an artistry to violence that was truly captivating, even though he wasn't a violent man. And all these films kind of represent that for the most part. You know, so... Speaking about this today, five years uh, away from him passing away in a very violent manner, it, it makes me really ponder, like, is, is that why he decided to go out the way he did? Because he always used to say, there are so many assholes out there that I want to see die before me. So it was an unexpected move on his part. But, you know, it didn't break my view and appreciation and respect of him because this guy who I grew up my entire life idolizing and he was my hero and I respected and admired and and envied the strength that he had and never like bowing down to adversity of whether it was financial crisis 
or some kind of racial discrimination, which he put up a lot with, not only from family, but from people in this state that's predominantly white that we moved into. He never let it bother him. He never let it shake him up, and he never got into a situation where he used his fists to solve a problem. So there's something to me that says, you know, at the end of the day, all that restraint that he used his entire life to avoid violence just got to him, and that is where the way he left us lies. So I know this is kind of a downer episode, but I've been feeling these emotions all week, and you know, now that I have this podcast and, and a reason to talk about it, because I don't have a lot of friends that understand my history, my childhood, being raised in a casino with circus people, being you know half Latino, moving to a town where there are no Latinos and being bullied for that. Most of my friends never had that in their life. And I think it's made me who I am. I feel like I'm a pretty strong guy and I use my words wisely and my fists even more wisely. But having a podcast now and having some people that actually care about what I have to say and like to know a little bit more about where I come from, I just figured I would take this opportunity to sit and just kind of tell you about this guy who was my father and me, who I feel you know a little bit more of now, more than just my opinions on movies and soundtracks and, and cult cinema and cult topics and comic books. That, that's kind of me. So I appreciate you taking this whatever 30, 40 minutes of your day to listen to this. I have to say it's, it's getting a little bit sad to me that each year gets easier, but maybe that's a good thing because I can talk about him like this where I probably wouldn't have spoken about him like this when he was still alive because he wouldn't let me because <laughs> he was very easily embarrassed. So thank you for listening. I'm not going to plug anything for this episode. It's just an episode of me telling you about my life and about this guy. And maybe next year on May 20th, I'll do it again with some other films. But until then, we'll get back to our regular scheduled program next week with more guests and more cult-worthy classic films. Thank you for listening, and I will see you later.